This evening we are starting a meditation <coughs> retreat together and in this the introductory <coughs> talk for the retreat we'd like to speak about what a retreat is we'd like to speak to you a little bit about the meditations themselves the, the application, the method and techniques which we are using and also about the general structure and guidelines for the retreat. One of the things which um, we noticed and notice and it's perhaps something of a, a social trend and something rather necessary is the, the value and the importance of small groups of people meeting together and working on, them, on themselves and through that as a group giving very real and substantial support to each other. And we've seen, and perhaps in the last generation very much, a, a wide diversity of groups who are and have emerged to develop their practices, to work on themselves, sometimes through the field of therapy, perhaps at the one-to-one level, sometimes through workshops, through meetings, through courses and retreats, all of this providing people who are interested in life, interested in looking at themselves, an opportunity and a facility to work and to be together. And there are, within those kind of activities or these kind of activities, certain kind of differences, I would, I would say. And one might say within the field of therapy, which is making such a valuable contribution to ways and means for us to work on the psyche, a person coming into such a situation, as that comes in, with some knowledge of what the difficulty is, some vague apprehension at least, and often perhaps quite a clear one owing to the degree of pain or confusion which is involved. And so that the primary motivation, quite understandably, is to get in touch with a situation or get in touch with a person who is in some way or other going to contribute towards facilitating change within oneself. And as change takes place in oneself, one begins to experience, obviously, the benefit of that. Sometimes that change comes quickly, sometimes the individual has to be patient with herself or himself because change comes gradually and it takes time. But there's a certain clear motivation about going into something for the purpose of change. This can take place on the individual level, can take place on the group level. And others participate, uh, particularly in the field of religion, not so much with a view, with the motivation towards changing of oneself, but has 
um, an activity, a shared activity, in which one has the opportunity to express one's devotion. Devotion generally to, to God, to the particular religious belief, occasionally to the, the Guru. And this is an, an opportunity for the heart to find its expression in conjunction with a group of other people. There's a meeting together, there is some renewal which comes out of that through some expression of, of a religious experience. And the retreat, and, and particularly the, um, an insight meditation retreat, doesn't, I would say, clearly and distinctly fall into either of those categories. I mean, certainly you, you may come, we may come here, and we have in our heart, in our mind, as a, a motivation, as a primary motivation for being here, something that we really want to work on, something we really need to, to look at. And we have a sense that it may well arise in the course of one's being here something unresolved or unclear, uncertain, with regard to the past, with regard to the present, with regard to the future. And that perhaps acts for some of you as a motivating factor to be here now, so that one has time, space and silence to look at more carefully. And the situation in a retreat like this does serve that purpose. But I would say... It's only an aspect of what being here is all, all about. And, it's, and it would be, um, one would be falling short in one's aim if one is just coming here to look at a specific or look at a, un, something unclear inside of oneself. And similarly too with regard to being here, it's not so much a... a religious event in so far as though a generation ago this particular facility was owned by the Catholic uh, Church and then they very uh, uh, kindly um, sold it to a number of people who, have, who had been to India wanted to establish meditation practice here on the East Coast and though it has that kind of history there, and though you will see everywhere around here reminders of religion and obviously specifically Buddhism, still none of us are here, at least I'm not anyway, in that particular category of devotion to the Buddha. So not falling in neither category, one of the important areas, of course, is what is the motivation for coming? What, what brings you, what brings me into a retreat? And motivation is regarded, and particularly in the Mahayana tradition, um, is given and is regarded with great importance and significance. In other words, that in our actions in life, of body, speech and mind, 
we are as clear as possible about what our motivation is. And therefore motivation itself is regarded as a major determinant for inquiry. Now motivation in life, of course, changes a lot. One may not be clear as far as content goes about what the actual motivation for coming here is. It, so it doesn't actually have to be conceptualized. So sometimes the motivation for coming into this situation, whether it's for your first time or whether you've been here frequently before, maybe just on a, a feeling sense or an, in, or an intuitive sense that it's right to come and be here at this particular time. So sometimes that motivation is, as I say, just on a direct feeling level. Sometimes one is clear. There's a certain reasoning, a certain content behind being here. But motivation is particularly important here and in any other area of one's life. Now, I just had a very good reminder, if I may say, of this, just the weekend um, before uh, coming here. I was um, in uh, um, England, and I'm, I'm on the uh, board of, the, of a, a group called the uh, a Buddhist Peace Fellowship, which was started up here in the States and primarily on the West Coast by people like Aiken Roshi and Gary Snyder and others. And I was invited to give a workshop for peace activists outside the uh, USAF uh, um, base in Cambridgeshire, which is in the, more or less in the, in the Midlands, in the central part of, of England. And some months ago, um, there were a number of um, caravans and old buses and vehicles and tents camped in a field alongside the airbase uh, as a peace camp making protest about the forthcoming cruise missiles which will go there probably late next year. The police did a raid, made a raid on the police. The police and some contractors that they hired to tow the vehicles away from the, the base um, made a night raid and was quite, from all I hear, quite aggressive. And, um, and the treatment of the peace workers didn't seem very uh, cons considerate in any way. Anyhow, during the course of the night, a friend, a good friend of mine who's done a number of retreats with me, was told to drive his vehicle, and the front of his vehicle was linked by chain to the vehicle, a contractor's vehicle in front, to tow him out of the field. He got the signal to start driving his vehicle. Unknown to him, there was somebody still fixing the chain under his vehicle, he drove onto this person. person was taken to a hospital, emergency, and had his spleen uh, removed and has made a recovery. The police dragged my friend off 
to the police station and said they were going to charge him with attempted murder. This was later reduced to being charged with grievous bodily harm. And I mention all of this because everything hinges on his motivation. The police say it was a deliberate action on his part to inflict harm on another. He says, and knowing him very well and very committed to non-violent piecework, that he had just didn't know that that person was still there and the signals he got was to start moving his vehicle. So, so the same... There's an action in life. The action can be one where we're coming from a wholesome motivation, from, therefore from a clear motivation, and sometimes it's from the other. But all of this in our relationship to life is, is to be clear about, and that applies to any situation that applies to being here. So it might be, it might be um, useful this evening, just before you go to, to sleep, just to just give a little reflection on what brings you into a retreat. And, I, and as I said earlier on, it's rather easy that it can occur that there, due to our own shortcomings, that we set our way of approach to spiritual work, we, we, we set it too short. And there's a number of passages where the Buddha's actually referred to this, and he's, as he says, never be satisfied with anything less than the best. And so in spiritual practice, or, or in spiritual work, the peculiarity of it, and particularly in terms of looking and seeing, is that, say, perhaps unlike therapy, unlike some forms of group work, where the emphasis is on actually changing oneself, spiritual work itself sees that as something of a side effect, something of an additional benefit. So though we may come in and we, you and I may recognise that we need to work on ourselves and change ourselves, and certainly that's extraordinarily important and significant considering all the social conditioning we are subjected to, yet change which comes in, in our life is something extra to the main stream of spiritual work which is to see things clearly. That's, that's the, the, the heart, in a way, the heart of it. To see life clearly. And to see life clearly means to see life, to see the present, to see actuality, not with just our thoughts, not with just a little bit of mindfulness, but with our whole being. So the meditation and the practice of meditation and all the trials and tribulations of meditation is in a way to truly integrate and harmonize ourselves, body, speech, mind, body, 
emotion, feeling, spirit, in, intuitiveness, to harmonize all of this together so that we can see clearly what life is. Really find life. And so, one, in that respect, one isn't falling short by just coming clear about one issue and problem in one's life, as important as it may be, but one is working towards that which is the best, which is complete and unexcelled freedom in life. Complete and unexcelled heart opening, out of which there is a, uh, a sustained, unstoppable power of friendship. And which can't, can't be broken by life. So it's, it's this working in ourselves and looking at ourselves to see more clearly life, what life is, what it actually reveals, and through that seeing, change comes. Now there's a long-standing tradition of men and women meeting together, practicing together, engaged in, in this kind of work. And it's a kind, and it's a kind of work which, uh, as I mentioned, isn't an easy task by, by any means in, in the moments and in successive moments of stopping and being still and being with oneself, the mind, the heart, the thoughts, the consciousness, the body, frequently finds it very, very difficult. It tends to often feel like one is going against all that one has been doing with one's life. Because so often our life is one, from day to day, of doing, 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 doing. And we have a very ingrained idea, almost one might say an indoctrinated idea within ourselves, that by doing and doing compulsively, somehow we'll come to fulfillment. Somehow we'll come to the best, whatever we imagine that to be. Somehow we'll come to the, the recognition of complete satisfaction. And so we have this compelling idea that doing is the way to come to that. And so when the message comes out, which is to some degree saying doing and achieving, doing and achieving isn't taking one where one's deep heart really wishes to be, then one is looking at quite the opposite to what we imagined. We're actually changing the focus quite dramatically to something which says, first find out in life what non-doing is. And I'm not obviously talking about passivity and apathy and with withdrawal. That's just a, an ineffective mode of mind. But first find out what non-doing actually is and see what that means in relationship to life. And so also often in our life relationship, 
we live in imbalance. And, there, and therefore, finding balance is the one aspect of it, but a very important one is the recognition in life of the relationship between doing and non-doing. And it's because non-doing is so unfamiliar in the real beauty of what that means, when we often when we come to sit, when we come to walk, in a meditative way, our mind is everywhere else but. It can't comprehend it, it can't understand it, it feels completely alien to oneself because we're a doer. And one is saying in that, one is not making in any way there that non-doing is some kind of ultimate end or some or place that one wants to one wants to get to. Apart from the paradox that it brings, when one wants to be a complete non-doer, might as well take Valium instead of paying $15 a day to come here. So, so in other words, one is trying, working or looking carefully, learning to see what simplicity, complete simplicity of being still and not doing anything special, what that means to see what comes out of one's being from not doing. So instead of you and I in our practice thinking in the old compelling way, I've got to get to here. Whether it's a, a short-term thing or whether it's some fanciful in, enlightenment and Buddhahood and all of these other peculiar ideas, Instead of thinking, I've got to get to, let us look, try to look and see somewhat differently that where we want to get to is where we are already, which is right here. Let's see what that means from a non-doing standpoint and see, rather than what you and I want to get to, let's see what we can be receptive to. Let's see what can come to us and what that might mean. And thus non-doing is the maximization within our being of receptivity to what can come to us. And therefore a different way of working altogether. In which the focus is not me, I must change myself, I must become this, I must become that, but another, another way And, and that, in that, therein, we might say, is the key there, therein to, as it were, the basic principles of sitting still, just being aware, just watching breathing coming and going. So totally non-special. Absolutely as ordinary as ordinary can be. Nothing colourful about it, nothing entertaining about it, nothing to get really excited about. So ordinary, it can seem dreadfully boring. And one may have to cut through some of that boredom. We may have to cut through some of that tiredness, some, some, some of that doubt which says, what the hell am I doing this for? 
And sometimes it's not much comfort to know that sages and saints, if there are any such things, of the, of the past or the present says, well, something seems to happen when one is sitting still and just being just observing, just being aware with care and sensitivity. Something is going on inside, which is of value. And sometimes in our conscious mind, it's hard for us to pick up, to really be aware of all that's happening in non-doing. So our days, our time and our days here, here together is uh, truly a nothing special situation. And in that the day itself is rather divided up, shall we say, between the, can hardly use the word activities anymore, having said all that, <laughs> between um, the non-doing of sitting and the non-doing of walking. <laughs> and in that, in our sitting meditation and giving care and attention to our, to our sitting meditation, again, because of the contrast of where we perhaps have just uh, come from to, to being here, again, one must go softly with oneself. You know, it's not a an exercise to, to bring about and induce upon oneself even more control. Control always has the background of fear to it in some form or other. So again, we, it's necessary for us to make allowances for settling in, allowances for a new situation, allowances for all the unfamiliarity of all of, all of this. And in making allowances and being clear but gentle with oneself, that can allow this settling in to occur. And in such a way that our motivations for being here don't fall short of what is best in life. So our sitting meditation is one of giving care and attention to the breathing, really being uh, mindful and conscious of each in-breath and each out-breath, using that to steady ourselves, using that to allow and enable more harmony to take place of body, mind, feelings, and for all that's implied in its potential of that harmony. And tomorrow morning there'll be a talk which I'll speak more length about the breath meditation. Then too, there is the, the walking practice the walking meditation, very slow, mindful walking, and the shift of emphasis, and it's rather an important one, is that generally speaking, in daily life, we walk obviously because we want to get somewhere. That's the reason for walking. So quite often we have the image of where we want to be, and the moment that idea or image of the destination is there, particularly with so much walking which is so um, familiar and often mechanical, it's as though we just, in a conscious way, we kind of switch off. And our mind spa spaces out 
and the mechanics of the body take over until we get to point B with just a few reminders in between. Meditation practice takes the emphasis off the end, off the goal, puts it on the means, puts it on the direct experience of walking. Once again, a, a very familiar everyday activity, getting in touch with that. Because that, in that way the body becomes a vehicle but it comes a vehicle not for just going from A to B, not for just walking in itself. It becomes a vehicle for seeing and understanding the, the processes of life. There's much to be discovered in six mindful steps. So our day sitting, our day walking, and establishing that rhythm through the course of the day. That's the meditatively the primary emphasis which is here. There are other aspects too with regard to the retreat and also have a, a part, a, a contribution to play. One of them is with regard to the talks. Now in the talks, we the evening talks, there are uh, question and answer periods with uh, Susan and I. There's also the meetings uh, with you, both individual and the first uh, couple of days or so at the group level with regard to the practice. And so... Um, Perhaps un unfortunately for you, you tend to be hearing our voices uh, rather a lot. Well, please remember how much we have to hear them. So, in, in the sitting practice, uh, when one comes out of the sitting practice and out of the walking practice, very much on the principle that whatever is said, it's not a gospel truth. And it, it, there's not an absolutism. And, and if sometimes we get a bit uh, charged or fired or, or, or preachy or anything like that, please regard that as, um, for me speaking, as peculiar idiosyncrasies, you know, and, uh, and let anything, either in terms of content or in tone or both, please feel free to remember there's a little sign up there, it's exit. And uh, anything which comes across which ought to go through the exit, then just let it go through. So in, in other words, one isn't here to build up a system of philosophy or a, or a system of religious beliefs and ideas. One must apply a discerning wisdom. A discerning wisdom means that one doesn't build up a system. The world is drowning in systems. We're bombarded morning, noon and night with systems. Some of them very obvious, you know, from scientific materialism, you know, to 
Buddhism and whatever it might be, and all the spectrums in and through. And discerning wisdom is being listening totally, it's being as clear in oneself as possible, and seeing what, and hearing, especially in this case, what is useful, what seems relevant, practical, direct, what touches. And that which touches varies from time, from time to time. I know, for example, there are some uh, teachers, and we pass on our teachers and, uh, and other teachers, who um, very regularly um, give the, the same talk, and to their um, everlasting credit, are able to repeat the same jokes and laugh themselves. This is tremendous. Um, and people who... <laughs> I'm not referring any names, please. <laughs> nor any centres. <laughs> and people who um, listen t- tell me that in, you know, in, in, uh, sp- in spite of hearing the, the same Dharma talk or the same theme a number of, of times, I often find that from one retreat to another, there's something which is said which one is particularly receptive to, even though one may have heard it before. Another time one may hear something new and it really registers or it, or it doesn't at all. And again, our listening doesn't mean to say that we're completely receptive to everything, but rather in our listening and in our discernment, what's useful, what's applicable, what works for us. And it's on, on, on that. So Dharma, message, you might say, isn't out to convert, convert people. Uh, all that seems to me useless. Waste of, waste, of, waste of time. Why convert people to anything? So again, we, we need this discernment there. So with the talks and with the interviews and the question and answer sessions, please understand that's important for us and I hope as important for you as well. With the, with, um, the general tone of the, of the day, one of the very important things is, and more important than what is said, is the silence. Of all things on a meditation retreat which gives real support and is uh, the great space in which discovery can be made, silence of, of life elements is precious beyond compare. And for those of us who have had the great privilege of uh, spending time in silence and finding and discovering s- silence, all we can do with our limitations of our words is to encourage people to practice in such a way that practice in respect of silence. Not only for the very real support that it gives to everybody else here, but silence is an element in life. It's, a, it's an extraordinary element in life. And again, 
so often because of busyness, because of doing, these, this major life element of silence and stillness just often just doesn't seem to have any relevance, any meaning for us. And it's at, it's at tremendous personal cost. And it's hard to communicate that. That's something that you have to find out. We have to keep finding out again and again. So again, within the sitting, within the walking, there is an element of stillness, the element of silence. Getting a sense for these two brings a consciousness into new areas of receptivity. Just finally now to um, tomorrow morning, the day itself begins at um, 5.30. The first hour of the day is a an exercise period, and that can take any form or expression that you wish, and anywhere except here in the meditation hall, but just something to get the energy um, moving a little, to uh, affirm the new day, one might say. And then at 6.30, there's the first group sitting, and that's for an hour, and at the beginning of the sitting period, I play, as I've been doing for some years now, a piece of um, music sent by friends, sent by uh, meditators, sometimes classical or tradition, all uh, different parts of the world, and that belongs to our area of total listening, or the practice of total attention, listening to each note, each sound and the quality of the listening is more important in this case than the content of the sound. And therefore, developing a, um, a receptivity with regard to listening. And during the day, we'd be meeting with people in small groups. Now, sometimes some people experience a great deal of difficulty with, with groups. I mean, just in which basically we're just talking about what's happening in our, in our practice, and often, of course, it's very, very similar from one person to another, but some people really experience a lot of fear and apprehension in coming into a group, and one has a feeling that I don't want to be in a group, I'd rather be downstairs in the meditation hall, sitting and not having to face the group. I would say, if that's where the difficulty is, that's where you've got to be. You don't put the fire out by walking away from it. So if there is, if you know or you experience a stronger difficulty in the group situation, please feel free to come to more than one group because that's a good place for your practice to be. And just as with others who are here in the meditation hall, that sometimes it's Difficult with the sitting, mind is restless and body is restless and takes a lot of um, settling in and one sometimes can't wait for the end of the sitting and one starts praying. You know, <laughs> one never realised one had such religious devotion <laughs> and in the re retreat. And again, it might be, might be useful come to the end of the sitting to say, right, this is where the difficulty is. Okay, let's sit another five or ten 
ten minutes. Let's let's learn to be with this. Let's see if I can use the breathing to settle in. All part of the practice in which we are working with ourselves. There's a silence and a space within our practice, and yet there's also small ways and means that we're just extending ourselves, and this contributes again to heart opening towards seeing more clearly and to all that is implied in seeing. And for this, one needs a great deal of devotion. A great deal of devotion to life, to seeing, to, to practice, to working with what actually is presenting itself. And finally, remembering that all of this practice is not just for you, it's not just for us, it really has a much broader sphere than that. It's for life on earth. It's really connected for life on earth. As human beings, we have tremendous potential. This center on this earth is a place where some of that real inner potential of human beings can start to be actualized. And that's what makes these facilities so precious on this earth. Because people come and work and on themselves, look at life and in, some, in a very real way pay respect to life by their practice. By your practice you pay respect to life. And therefore we pay respect to each other and that quality of respect will generate itself in this unstoppable friendship to all forms of life. May all beings be in touch with themselves. May all beings be in touch with life. May all beings live in harmony.